Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. Hi, this is Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. And today I have Sean Salas, who is the CEO and co-founder of Camino Financial, which is an online fintech company focused on lending to the Latinx community, specifically Latino-owned businesses, where there's an unmet credit demand of close to $7 billion. Sean is often featured as a commentator discussing fintech and Latino entrepreneurship, and he's appeared on Univision, CNN, Discovery Channel. He also uh, has a podcast called Fundamental Fairness, featuring conversations with industry thought leaders and bridging the gap between fintech and financial inclusion. So, Sean, welcome to the show today. No, thank you for having me, Jonathan. So I like to start always with, you know, what your life, what your childhood life was like. And uh, most of the listeners on this show are either part of family businesses or advising family businesses. And I understand that you were born of an, uh, to an entrepreneurial mother, from an entrepreneurial mother. So tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So my mom immigrated from Mexico, like many immigrants, they have this story of pursuing entrepreneurship as their only means at times at generating wealth for themselves, their family, and their community. We call that generational wealth. Mm -hmm. and, and over the course of her entrepreneur journey, she opened over 30 restaurants here in Southern California. And so, so I can never wow. complain about working hard with my mom. She was, she was, a, she is a tough cookie when it, when it comes to working and, and at that time, even I have a twin brother, Kenny, who's also the co-founder of Camino Financial. And uh, it, what, what was interesting is that him and I would fight over who slept in my mom's bed that night so that we can see her. So, so my mom was a hard worker. <laughs> um, unfortunately, my mom did lose her business. And, mm. and at that point in time, I was 12 years old. My mom decided to pack her bags and move back to Mexico. And, and so Kenny and I grew up in Mazatlán, Sinaloa, which is on the Pacific coast. Great mariscos, by the way. Mm-hmm. I bet. And, well, we, it ended up being a blessing in disguise. Uh, we, we grew up in, in, in Mazatlán from 12 to 20 years old and, and really got the, you know, built a stronger sense of our roots in, in our, because I, I, I'm fully ascribed to the designation Mexican American. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, and then, but also knew that I wanted to come back to the U S and re-pursue the American dream. And so Kenny and I did, we were lucky enough to get into Berkeley and, and in that experience, we also for the first time saw what it meant. It feels like, to experience uh, systemic racial injustice in the United States. I think that in many ways as a 12 year old or younger, you don't really experience that, or at least I had the benefit of not experiencing it, but it wasn't until I came back to the US and I was a 20 year old Latino 
that I certainly started realizing that, you know, the opportunities that are extended to us aren't not necessary, aren't necessarily the same. Um, and so I, at the, at the same time, I also benefited in that experience in different programs that help facilitate and, and build and capacity building for young Latinos that may not have the network of family members and others that have been in finance and can't necessarily break in as easily. So I was able to uh, apply and, and, and be part of this program called SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, that have a great career program. They got me and Kenny a job on Wall Street and then built our experience there. And then it wasn't until about five years into our career uh, that we we realized that we weren't moving money into the communities that we're excited about, which is in this case, uh, the, the Latinx uh, business market and, and really wanted to rethink what the right model is to invest in that market. And that was really the seed that was planted that would eventually germinate to become Camino Financial. And we were lucky enough to be able to germinate that seed while we were completing our MBAs at Harvard Business School. Both of you were at Harvard Business School and both of you were at Berkeley. Yes. This is an interesting story just in and of itself that as twins, your path has been together at the same schools and in the same business. So, so let's dive into that for just a moment a little bit. What, what's it like to work with a twin brother? I mean, you guys, I, I get that you were swapping, you know, with the bed uh, with the mom and um, competing <laughs> for attention, but you guys really have each other all the time almost. Yeah, we you know we do, but we also know how to isolate um, our responsibilities based on our respective strengths and weaknesses. So, mm -hmm. uh, I am the CEO of Camino Financial. There is only one CEO at Camino Financial. Good, glad to hear uh, that. <laughs> and, and, and 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 the the co CEO thing, and Kenny would agree with this, doesn't work. Right? I'm more external facing, but Kenny is an operator at heart. He loves you know, tinkering with all the potential operational efficiencies internally. And so, and, and so naturally he was a better fit for the COO role. So no conflict there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and now that we have very clearly delineated responsibilities, that gives us the space to do our thing and collaborate without feeling like I'm always in his shadow and he's always in mine. So we, we make it work and we we're very professional about how we work with each other. Today was actually my annual review and Kenny laid it thick on me. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that's great. The, the reality is that, that it's great to have uh, a partner uh, in, in life outside of my wife <laughs> that, is, that is a friend, but also professional and knows and a brother, but knows how to isolate those three. Because if, you, if, you, if I were to operate um, with Kenny as if he's my brother at Camino Financial, that just wouldn't work. And quite frankly, it wouldn't signal well internally into the business. If if I'm not the best CEO that Camino Financial has available, then I shouldn't be in that role. And I think Kenny would say the same thing about his role as SEO. That's great. It sounds like you have a very cooperative relationship. And, um, and I guess maybe it's true generally about twins. I haven't done any research in this area. Maybe you have, or anecdotally you can share 
you know, maybe competition doesn't live that strongly with twins. They're, they more cooperate with each other, but it's interesting dynamic. Well, it's so funny. I actually, so I can tell you more of the anecdotal experience uh, uh, versus the, the, the opposite in terms of grounded by research here. But what I've seen the two, two different extremes. I've seen one extreme where uh, the twins are very uh, effectively like polar opposites mm-hmm. and they, one person goes in one direction, the other goes somewhere else. Um, and then I hear, and then I hear also the, the other extreme of they are always latched to each other and doing everything together and, and teammates. And so I feel like Kenny and I in many ways are, we try to find the balance in everything. Here's an interesting uh, experience. So in our same class at Harvard Business School, there were not one, which was us, or two, but three sets of identical twins, which was crazy. Yeah. And, and it's so funny because the other two sets, there there was one set where the you know great young ladies they would dress the same, sit next to each other in classes. They wanted to do the same things like, oh, my gosh, like in, in carbon copies of each other. And then there was the other set that were a bit different, but still very close and hang out with each other. And then there was Kenny and me that you probably wouldn't see us in the social scene together at all. And we made we did that purposely, even though we were co-founding a company together. So Interesting. Kenny and I make concerted efforts to give ourselves the space that we need. But at the same time, as evidenced by same school, same career trajectory on Wall Street, on Wall Street, and then, of course, co-founding a business and going to Harvard Business School together, one would think at face value that we are just like tied to the hip. But in many ways, we do make concerted efforts to, to, to be separated and, and complement each other where necessary. And, and quite frankly, and I always tell people ask me, is there a competition between you two? I'm like, yeah, but it's healthy competition. Yeah. We're always okay. trying to elevate each other's game. That's really good. That's really good. All right, let's go back to your mom for a second, and then we'll fast forward back to the business again. What was the, the learning lesson when your mom, for you, um, and, and, and in retrospect, when your mom lost the, thir- the, restaurant, the, bus- the restaurant business? Did she have... 30 at one time, or did she open up 30 over time under different brands? Give us a little bit of background. Great so. question. So, so, um, our, so there, it was, she opened 30 restaurants over the course of her career. Okay. Um, but at most, and this is a number that I don't have a hard number on, uh, because my mom and her paperwork are, are, are hard to kind of sift through in now these days. But my best recording is that she had somewhere between uh, 15 and 17 restaurants at a point in time. Those are my rough estimates. But what's wow. interesting, and I asked my when, when I found, because obviously I've, I've been revisiting her past in the context of even the story of Camino Financial. And in doing so, I, I took some time to sift through the paperwork and get gauge a response to that question. And when I did, I said, hey, mom. So, okay, we I, I do have a recording because when she, when she turned uh, 50, my my sister did like this recording of every restaurant that she she opened and it was 30. But then when I kind of looked at a piece of paper and saw that at a point in time, there were, you know, I, I think it was in the teens once again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I asked my mom, so what happened to like the other 15? And what's interesting is she said, oh, well, here's how I did it. What I would do is I negotiate when I, first of all, I had a few hacks on opening my restaurants. First of all, 
I would always try to open my restaurant next to a McDonald's. And the reason why I would do that, one, I was a big fan of Ray Kroc. I read his book, knew that every he was very good at picking real estate and that they would do their due diligence on where they would open their restaurant. And so what so what I would do is just piggyback off of that due diligence <laughs> and open a restaurant nearby. I was like, That's smart. Very, very cool. Very, Here's yeah. the other thing. She's like, the other thing I would do is she's like, I'd negotiate short and by the way, no college education. Okay. My mom just like hardcore, you know, learned on the street entrepreneur, right? The other thing she would do is, is I would, I, what I would do is I'd negotiate a very short term lease with a X year extension. But, and, and usually of course, leasers don't want to have you do a short lease, but she's sure. like, what I would do, I would tell them, I'm going to, this is not the best property because she would, she would find more opportunistic buys near those McDonald's locations. And she's like, what I'll do is I'll, I'll update the whole building for you. I'll update everything. And, and, and a minimum, if it doesn't work, because after two to three, she's like, I'll, I'll know if it's a winner or a loser within three months. And so, and she would literally negotiate this like three month lease with this extension. She's like, <laughs> but you'd be like, I, if it's a loser within three months, at least I'll give it back to you, but you'll have an updated property that came at my own expense. Wow. And people would take that deal. And so she would have, so that was her hack. And I'm like, mom, do you realize what you did? And at this point I'd already graduated from HBS, you know? And so I'm like, do you know what you did, mom? Like there's, there's a framework for that. And she's like, you applied the lean startup framework. (laughs) What do you mean, Nicole? That was your MVP. And that was a great MVP. And then you pivot or perish if it's working or not. That's awesome, mom. Great job. And she's like, oh, okay, me hiding. No, I'm like, that's great. <laughs> pivot or perish. I'm like, you're great, mom. And she would pivot. Sometimes she, she would tell me, just to add on to that story, she'd be like, oh, yeah. Sometimes like her main thing was authentic Mexican foods called under the brand of Mexicano. But she was like, yeah, I would change them to paleterias, which is like really good, like, um, uh, uh, frozen, uh, uh, like ice cream, Mexican ice cream. Mm-hmm. I would, I would turn them into a fish, a, a fish and chips place. Like I would iterate through the, through what the menu was as much as I possibly could until I can make them winners. If not, of course, I would perish. I'm like, wow, that's pretty awesome. And this was in Los Angeles, I take it. Yes. Yep. So, primarily the valley. It reminds me of Tommy's Burgers, where. Uh, when my friend came out of business school, he went to work for Tommy's Burgers, which is an institution in L.A. Um, there, every Tommy's Burger is spelled differently, has got a different ownership structure. And they were always burgers, but they were iterating constantly. So great story. Um, so then you get into this business now and you're in. I mean, for those who don't understand what fintech is, it's a combination. It's a cross between financial services and technology. And so if you've ever made a an application for a loan to a company where you didn't really meet anyone. Uh, they were behind the scenes and you were filling out applications and it was seemed like it was all seamless. That's mm-hmm. FinTech. I mean, right. It, PayPal is some version of FinTech, I would assume uh, it's uh, you know, any of these types of organizations, but so, so you've picked this underserved market and 
you're really being a disruptor in the market. So tell us a little bit about what the vision for the business is. Right. Well, the, the vision of the business is to be, and, and we're, we're in the process of, of, of expanding this vision and, 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 and you know, materializing it. But our, our vision is really to be pioneer affordable credit to underbank small businesses. And we're going to focus on the Latinx market. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's part number one. But if I had to label that in one line or not, or, or just label that and just to give it a good label, I'd call it a neo CDFI. Now, for those that don't know what a CDFI is, it's a community development financial institution. And CDFIs, for short, have really been designed, and through your experience at John, uh, Jonathan at, at VEDC, you know that really these, these CDFIs are designed to invest in communities. Uh, but they don't only just invest in the form of capital, uh, but they invest in the form of education. And that educational piece is very important. Uh, we have a saying at Camino Financial that capital in isolation is not the solution. And so that's why I like using the normer CDFI. And in fact, I add a NEO to it, which is new, mm-hmm. um, because I also think that there is a lot of innovation that still needs to take place in the CDFI space. Um, in many, in, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been, based on my calculation, over $40 billion in commitments that have been oriented towards investing in black and brown businesses that have been disproportionately uh, left behind in the context of COVID and even governmentally reef programs that have been made available. And so in order to correct for this issue, which by the way, is only an amplification of the reality that's been happening for many years. Of course. But in order to correct for this, uh, many the, the government has not only designated uh, capital, but also private corporations are designated large pools of capital, about forty billion dollars and counting, to CDFIs and MDIs, which stands for Minority Depository Institutions. Hmm. That's the good news. the The asterisk next to that is that what we have found is that of the CDFIs out there that round to something in around 1,000, 1,100 CDFIs, um, half of them are what we call non-depository CDFIs. They're not banks. Um, they don't take deposits. The other ones are like small banks. Think about them more as banks as they are CDFIs, right? And so, but for the non-depository CDFIs, um, uh, the great majority of them you move less than $10 million in loans per year. Wow. And, and, and that's in the scheme of things, that's really small. When we're talking about $40 billion and let's call it, there's like 550 non-depository CDFIs that move $10 million each. I mean, you can, you can measure the capital gap. Like, okay, how do we move this money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and even the depository CDFIs aren't moving money at scale. And when you double click into what kind of money they're moving, they're like, oh, well, 20 to 30% of it's small business signing. Great. But the average loan of those small business loans are what? $200,000. Wait, yeah. wait. Yeah. Where the need is, is for the businesses that need much less than 50000 They're micro businesses, they're solopreneurs. There is a category for that. That's called microfinance among CDFIs. And that's less than 1% of all the assets outstanding among CDFIs. So go, you know, go figure that fintechs have now, quite frankly, taken over. And there was an NYU study that was published that said that actually the, the, the biggest 
um, winners in moving money to underserved communities weren't the CDFIs, um, weren't even the banks, they were the fintechs. And so that's, and, and community banks, I, I, will, I will tip my hat to community banks, did a really good job too. Yes, they I did. I say that CDFIs didn't move money, uh, but when you look at the averages and the, the numbers and you qualify it based on where the money is going in terms of the underserved, where, where the small dollars that no one really wants to do, it's the fintechs, the tech-enabled lenders that did the best job. And so, but the, here's where the issue comes. Then what happens is people see both CDFIs and, 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 and fintechs as mutually exclusive. They see them as competitors. And that's the wrong way to think about it. We should see them as one in the same, ideally, and hopefully Camino Financial is there to lead the charge. Very interesting. Now, can a community bank become a CDFI as well? Yes. And is that is there a trend for that to happen? Because they've done really well at getting into the community and and making small business loans, but but they don't do a lot of volume. I think they they probably tend to focus on the larger, more successful companies. Many of my clients are are with community banks because they're growing and they can get the personal attention and services. So that's right. So here's the thing. I think that. Community banks, in my mind, don't necessarily need to be a CDFI to move the needle. I mean, they can lend into markets that are underserved and in many ways are designed to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, and they can still receive the CDFI designation and, and, and that's fine too. In fact, to the point that I was making a little earlier, um, of the 1,100 CDFIs or so that are out there, half of them are depository institutions. Uh, so, so there are, call it another five, roughly 550 depository CDFIs out there. Right. But in aggregate, all 1,100, and now this is a guesstimate, move about $2 billion in small business loans a year. That's That's, enough, that's, 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 that's nothing. nothing. That's nothing. That's less right. than 1% of all small business lending in the United States in a given year. Wow. Less than 1%. So, so we're still not seeing... Um, even amongst those depository CDFIs, um, the level of volume uh, that 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 would merit. I mean, just if, if you want to know what the size of the balance sheet of all CDFIs are, it's $150 billion. That includes where most of the money is, is real estate and, 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 and commercial real estate, uh, a residential and commercial real estate. Which doesn't create right. nothing. That's just those like, don't create jobs. Those basically are... Uh, you know, I mean, basically they substitute for rent payments. And so it, it, it creates wealth for sure, right? It, it but, does. And, but, and I do want to clarify one point on that. And sorry for interrupting you, Jonathan. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm trying to call a spade a spade so that we can elevate CDFIs. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm by no, I mean, I'm designating myself and, and very soon, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to go out there and say, this is happening and we're committed to it and we're going to invest a lot of money in it. And that's only a question of time. But I, I'm, I'm committed to the CDFI space. I just think we need to recognize where, you know, our, our size, right? So that we can address what are the impediments to being bigger players in the landscape, especially at a time when so much money is being allocated to it. That's all. I just wanted to clarify that. Super. All right. So I'm guessing you're, you're, you're very good, facile, I would say, with the numbers and the size of the market. And any really savvy entrepreneur 
who's trying to scale up needs to understand what's the size of the market and what's the opportunity here. So what is the big BHAG for your company? Do you have that? And do you know what I mean? BHAG, right? Jim, Jim, do they make you read Jim Collins at Harvard uh, Business School? Yeah. So, so the, are the you, big, yeah. hairy, audacious goal. Is yeah, the my big, uh, yeah, no, of course. Um, uh, you know, I, I love from good to great. Um, uh, so, and I love Jim Collins. So um, from what is our big audacious goal? Our big audacious goal is to build generational wealth in underbanked communities mm-hmm. by offering affordable capital to Latinx entrepreneurs. That right. is that is our mission. Um, notice I didn't lead with deploying capital, affordable capital into the market. No, it's really building generational wealth. At the end of the day, we see entrepreneurs as vessels to... Uh, to build generational wealth. Because if you make an entrepreneur successful, they are going to hire more people. You're going to elevate their employees. That entrepreneur is going to, are natural leaders within their communities, right? And they're going to elevate their community in the process. And and they're going to put money in their, in their account. And we want that too. It's very important that um, the entrepreneurs that we're supporting make money. I always tell people, Hey, and, and, and this is also one area where I'm always trying to push people. It's like, it's okay to want to make money and putting in times money first. Well, I want to kind of give back to, and it's like, no, you can do both, but you need to have a sustainable business model <laughs> in order to do both. <laughs> so, so don't lose track of getting that business model right. And you can do well and do good at the same time. And that's very important. That's a philosophy that we have at Camino Financial. And, and yes, we, we want to build generational wealth in underserved communities. Now, we are committed to these underserved communities. The largest and fastest growing uh, 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 underbanked segment in the world is the Latin, U.S.-based Latinx segment. Um, if you had to aggregate the U.S. Um, Latinx GDP, it would be two, they would generate $2.6 trillion dollars in GDP per year and growing faster than India and China. So that's like, and and by the way, just to put 2.6 trillion in context, that would be the eighth largest economy in the world, uh, larger than Brazil and twice the size of Mexico. Unbelievable. So So are are there any geographic restrictions to your lending? Do you have to be, uh, are you licensed only in the United States or only in certain yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So, we, so we do have some state restrictions. By and large, um, we are um, we we lend in most states here in the United States, including California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so we're happy to be available. Yes, but we do lend in most states, uh, but only in the United States. We don't lend um, outside of the U.S. I figured as much. Okay, we talked about business model. I know you're on a tight time frame, so uh, I put together a framework for scaling up a business and it's called the seven P's framework or playbook. And I'm wondering which is the most challenging for you in your business at this time. And so that framework is uh, the first P is purpose, uh, which I think you're pretty clear about what your purpose is Um, planning, you know, where are we going one year, three years, 10 years, 15, whatever the time horizons are Um, Mm -hmm. products and the market, which sounds like you're very knowledgeable on people which is the management of people, the attraction of, you know, a player talent, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, priority management mm-hmm. and creating processes 
and performance management. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have to learn all those T's. So I'm going to do my best. Okay. Yeah. Which one? Right. Uh, uh, no, let, let me try to go through each of them a little bit, but I'll, I'll go fast. Okay, okay sure. <laughs> Uh, so let me, let me start with, so purpose was clear. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll put uh, it up on the screen if you want, so you can have a visual of it. Oh, great. 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 I was going to see if I can surprise myself, but go ahead. <laughs> that, that does help. Uh, so, so purpose, we, we addressed that very clear. Um, uh, planning, uh, is very important. So from a planning process, we apply OKRs, um, objectives and key results. Um, that helps us. Um, one, iterate through what one are the objectives and how we measure those objectives. And, and, I, and what I love about OKRs for those that, that aren't familiar with OKRs, um, they, you can iterate through them a lot faster, especially in a startup environment where um, having like an annual objective is not necessarily conducive because things are changing every time. Um, you can do OKRs on a monthly or quarterly basis. We do them on a quarterly basis, and that's been great. Um, uh, products. Uh, so we are we are actually in the process of moving from a monoline product strategy to a multi-line product strategy. Um, I'll throw another term out there: a beachhead product. Um, we our beachhead product is a microloan, an unsecured microloan for micro businesses, where we saw a huge need in the market, um, and we were able to effectively. Uh, build a strong foundation in our credit model and infrastructure um, to roll out that microloan. But now we have an eye towards um, um, offering up other credit products across our, 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 our product suite. But what the microloan gave us is an opportunity to offer a market that was best in class, unique in the market that helped us you know, build a very large captive audience. And now that we have that large um, captive audience, we can drip into other products um, as part of that underlying experience. Uh, people are something that I'm always thinking about. Um, in particular, I'm, I'm focused on uh, recruiting best-in-class executives at Camino Financial, and, um, and, and we're always looking for good talent, so please um, uh, look us up. You can look at our jobs link on our website um, and also email us and, uh, at info at CaminoFinancial.com or check us out on LinkedIn, and we're more than happy to, to evaluate um, priorities, I, 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 you know, I, I guess between planning and priorities, I think that's where OKRs come in place. So I, I, I mix those a little bit. Um, and then processes, um, you know, from that perspective, Kenny is a spectacular, he's the CEO of Camino Financial. One thing I will tell you, because we can talk about processes all day, uh, but, but one thing that's very important is that you institutionalize your processes as best as you can within your organization that cuts through and you leverage best practices, but also don't let practices processes get the best of you. We, we have a saying at Camino Financial, people over process, right? So sometimes when a company can be too, is too process oriented, they become too rigid and let the processes dictate the outcome versus the other versus the people dictate the, uh, the outcomes and leveraging processes to do it as efficiently as possible. And of course, performance, performance management um, cuts across um, uh, not only in the context of OKRs, but creating the appropriate feedback loop within your people and creating an underlying culture for performance excellence. That's really good. But good to great. You know, that, that was the big one, right? That was the big learning. He's like, yeah. we did this big study and I'm like very data driven. And lo and behold, 
we landed on leadership, right? And, and we la- we landed on some of the soft stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that you know, I would I would refuse like level five leadership. Right? I refuse refuse to acknowledge. But a lot of that is also built in culture, right? And so building a culture for excellence is super important. I can't emphasize that enough. Hundred percent. You can support that with good process. Absolutely. Great answers. Great interview. Will you be bringing other family members into the business? Do you anticipate? Uh, no. I think, <laughs> I think, I think Katie, I do have one sister that, that works there, but um, we're very careful about making sure that um, the Salas name is limited within our organization. We're happy to, to, our ratio is only three to about the 72 people that are there. And that ratio is only going to get um, smaller and smaller. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's fine. That's fine by me. Yeah. So you're 72 people. Is that how many? Yes, you, we are. Fantastic. And do you know what your compounded annual growth rate has been since you started? What like give us give the listeners a framework here. Ooh, since we started, I actually think about it a little bit differently. So, um, uh, so I can tell you since um, pre-COVID, mm-hmm. it was about uh. 57% on a com- quarterly, quarterly compounded growth rate. Wow. Okay. Just to be clear. Wow. COVID. Um, and then that, then, and then of course COVID happened, we had to retrench um, uh, appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since June, um, we're tracking something closer uh, to about 35 to 40% on a quarterly compounded growth rate. Um, Fantastic. Starting in, Q, starting in Q3, um, using Q2 as our base. So um, uh, and that, and that, and that's been, that's been good. Um, uh, it's not as high, as steep as it was because, you know, the market's still recovering and we need to be thoughtful about that. Uh, but you know, we see ourselves, um, um, you know, getting back to where we were pre-COVID very soon. And actually March was a good month for us, um, for 2021. And, and now with the, out, the, the, the vaccinations coming out, um, uh, and, and the market's reopening, we're, 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 very positive about the future. That was my next question and my last question. Um, with vaccines coming out, you know, will the Latinx community embrace getting the vaccine? And, uh, or, you know, will they be like some of the other people of color who will be less trusting? And will it be a slower recovery for the Latin-owned businesses? Yeah, so the, well, I can't speak too much to the adoption rate of vaccination. All I right. can say is that, Every leader within the Latinx community needs to do their part to support um, the use of vaccinations. And, and, and so I'm certainly doing that part. So please go get vaccinated. Good, good. Um, yes. Helping us all. Uh, I want to go on record on that, number one. Uh, number two, um, yes, I, we are seeing a slower recovery um, amongst uh, communities of color. But I also want to layer on top of that two important things, which is number one, we were a lot more resilient than people gave us credit for. Literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally. Number two, uh, we're actually just finishing, a, finishing up a survey. Uh, we, we surveyed 500 Latinx business owners this last, uh, this last month. And I'm happy to tell you, I don't have the firm number on the top of my head, but Latino business owners, by and large, are very optimistic about the future. Great. Great. What a great sit down interview with you working from home looks like both of us um sean very impressed with your story uh it's a, such a unique and interesting story you're going after a market that is underserved um i know 
we talked a little bit before, I spent 10 years consulting, training, financing, and helping businesses in minority and disenfranchised communities. And look, small businesses in America are the backbone. 96% of all businesses in the United States are under a million dollars in revenue. So, you know, to get over $10 million in revenue, which uh, it puts about, you know, it's like almost less than a couple of percent, uh, one or 2% of all businesses. Um, sounds like you're a rock star in an industry that's exploding and that has got a lot of potential and it's going to have a market that's going to be well served by you. So kudos to you. Hats off to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. All right, so you've heard it. This is another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. If you enjoyed this show, uh, please listen, share, subscribe, um, tell others. And if you're interested in Sean and his contact information, it'll be in the show notes as usual. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.